everybody. This is Justin Ashford, the audio producer for We Eat Art. In this week's interview, our host, John Mejias, wasn't able to be recorded in New York, so he'll sound like this, because all we could do was record the studio interview in L.A. with Zach and our guest. That will sound totally normal. And we left a phone on the table, on speaker, and that's how you'll hear John. It's not written. On a written thing, you use the same word over and over, and people go, oh, this is all over. When you talk... It's like cereal, right? They're like, oh, this is how you talk. Anyway, I'm for it. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. This is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... They got these old molds and they had two glazes that were actually the same glaze. One was white, one had blue stain in it. I had two glazes, I'd done a bunch of stuff. It was pretty motley. And I called my mom and I said, I, you know, it's pretty dog-eared. What, I don't know what I should do. And she says, just do it, you'll need the money. <laughs> so I did it. This episode, we're talking to Peter Shire about one of my friends who was a six foot three inch ex showgirl from Texas. We were standing there, and someone asked about one of the models and said, Is this a model for a bigger sculpture? And I started to say, Well, really, once you start expanding at the size, everything changes. And I started to try and explain that, and she pulls me aside quickly and says, Oh, honey, just tell them they can have it any size they want. <laughs> So here we are at the studio of Peter Shire. It is amazing. It's like a magical, it's a magical factory. And John is missing out because he's in New York and uh, Peter and I are in LA. Peter is sitting here drawing what looks to be Wright Brothers airplane. Yeah, it is kind of a chair that's based on Kitty Hawk. All right. He got that one in one. Well, I I, uh, paint sometimes. Yeah. Where we start at the beginning, usually. So you were born. I was born at Queen of Angels Hospital down uh, off of Alvarado Street. Yeah, it's now a place called the Dream Center, which I suppose is appropriate. So you're born here in L.A. at yeah. the park, and fourth you're... generation California. My mom, her family came in 1860. What did your parents do? My mom uh, was a housewife, and then an activist, and a store owner, which was the soap plant which became Wacko. Oh, okay. My brother took it over. For those of you who don't live in L.A., it's a store where they sell all these art books and they've got a gallery in the back, a sort of juxtaposed kind of art gallery in the back of there. And it was originally a soap plant. It was was called the soap plant because we sold uh, Body Shop of Berkeley products, which then became the other body shop. Okay. And And the story that's told with that is this woman, my aunt, wanted to see Broadway shows, and she was really frugal, so she started a store in New York so she could write off her trips to New York. And, and this gal in England copied their format and came into New York. Well, they had a presence, so she had to confront it and bought the name. And the great story is yeah. she bought the name for... Nobody would ever tell us how much, but it was a lot. She paid a lot for the three words, and two of them were the and shop. so it's based on soap and then artifacts and weird ethnographia and and of course my brother turned it into american ethnographia what kind of activist was your mom oh god Uh, my mom uh, and dad were very active in the labor movement of the 30s they considered themselves uh, marxists and communists they went on to uh, protest you know, it's like Marlon Brando said in The Wild One, and the, the guy says, what are you rebelling against? And the answer is, what do you have? The Rosenbergs, I remember going to rallies to try and save the Rosenbergs and going to uh, smog, war. The whole, the whole nine yards. Yeah, the whole left-wing uh, agenda, basically. But they would have been, like by the time that... Vietnam came around, they would have been older, right? Yes. They would have been like established activists and labor people. Yeah, and I uh, I was old enough to be subject to the draft and took a uh, strong position as a conscientious objector and, and got my 1AO status, convinced them that I was not a good bet. 
So was your dad also, did he also run the store, or was he doing something My else? dad had become a carpenter. Okay. He was trained as an artist, an illustrator. By the time the store was really going, he was semi-retired, and he really worked on the store and did all the fixtures and stuff like that. So he built the house that you live in. If that's that's right. right. That's right. That was his first real job. But that's not this studio. That's a different place. No, nope. this is here. It's up the street. Okay. Yeah. This studio is magnificent. It is. Yeah, something else. Was, was it something it? else before? Well, it was something else a lot. It was built in 1924, mm-hmm. but it's something else that I'm in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's no shit. You know, you go, God, I don't believe this. Fuck. Do a lot of people work here, or is it just you and a couple assistants, or just uh, you? Yeah, we, we have three, three people helping, two mm-hmm. part-time and one full-time. And my wife and I, you know, different people at different times, sometimes a few more, but not too many. When did you first decide that you were going to be an artist? You started moving in that direction. Was it that, see, Now, you remember we were talking earlier about the questions that always, sure, get, yeah. That yeah. They, they always get asked. B, they have certain answers you've worked out. Yeah, give me the stock answer. The stock answer? <laughs> well, the stock answer is that I was, I don't know, about eight months old. Mm. And, you know, we had a little lawn. All right. Most of them, the answers don't start with eight months old. So this yeah. is good already. Yeah. And I was, you know, and, you know, we were a kid. And I was on a blanket. And I was naked on my stomach, you know, kind of looking up. And the clouds parted. And a big hand came down. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, this like, is familiar now. Yeah. yeah. And said, you've had it, buddy. Yeah. You're, for going, you're going to be an artist. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, did your parents cry? <laughs> they, with joy, they wept tears of joy. They were rainbow colored. Did you immediately take the rainbow colored tears and like make a little... Well, that's where the obsession with color, that's question number two. You know, that's where the question of color came from. Is that the stupidest it no, is. no, it's but you know, but the thing there's is, there's some point you, you, know, you did a thing, you right? Know, well, what what we should talk about, because you know, because it might be of some value. Uh, of course, yeah. Is that most people answer stuff like, "I because you can't do anything else." Okay, it's a or, death. Yeah, you know, which is a, a backwards say. It's it's a wonderful possibility, and it was a fantasy possibility. You know, aside from other things, you know, other shall we say imperatives. And actually, I always thought I was terrible at math. You know, I, I can do that. You know, you have to do that because, you know, we're also business people. Otherwise, this, this roof doesn't happen, right? Clearly, yeah. So I can amortize stuff and figure stuff out. But I have all these weird methods. Erratic I don't know how to describe people. it, but like going, well, if 10 times 7 is 56, then multiply it by 2 and subtract 3, and you get the price of these things. Oh, yeah. That's how I do uh, sales tax. <laughs> but it, like usually there's one I won't or two tell stories, the government. And I think I know which one yours is. But usually the story is like, ah, uh, I had no idea that artist was even a job you could have because I grew up in this environment, and then I got out of it. And the other one was my parents were very like supportive. It sounds like the kind of parents you have, would have been like, it would have bohemian environment where it would have, it seemed like an option from a young age that you could become a professional. Well, yeah, when in reviewing things, there was always a lot of emphasis that was a value in our family. Mm. That's a real thing, right? Like you're saying, that was a real value in our family. I got out of art school in 1969. Where was that? Chenard Art Institute, yeah. so okay. which was down on 8th and Grandview, so in MacArthur Park, Westlake area. Right. So, which says, I never went to school more than three miles from home. I didn't go anywhere. Yeah, you know? I mean, it is close by. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have this radiating circle that was very tight. At that point, surviving in studio, selling art, etc., seemed to be really reserved for people like Matisse and Miro and, and Picasso and, and that ilk. You know, that was what, you know, maybe Calder entered into it in our sure. American fantasies. Yeah. You know, we saw Stella, Stella, you know, Frank Stella and, right. and that crowd doing stuff. But that was like 10 guys in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea of surviving in studio, etc., was weird. And you know what? When I, I worked for the uh, county of L.A. one summer. Yeah. 
and I was a clerk in the Hall of Records. And so it was a very different milieu. And there was one guy I was talking to, and he said, you know, he's looking at this young woman across the hallway, and he says, look at her this, and look at, you know what kind of stuff he was looking at. He's looking at her body and, and her face and how wonderful she was. And he said, but I better stop talking about it, because if I keep talking about it, I won't do anything. And then uh, uh, I had a Japanese girlfriend, and, and she uh, told me that one of the rules of making rice is to never open the pot while it's boiling. Right. So with those two bits of information, I thought, well, if I, I want to do this, I should never talk about it. Okay. Right. We're really screwing that up today. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's over. You know, I mean, at this point, you know, you and then it. sometimes I'd be awake at night. No, no, my dad, who, you know, had this training, became a, what would be known in the trade as a custom carpenter. He really, okay. you know, he got kicked out of the union for organizing, if you can imagine. And uh, it was run by the mafia, apparently. It was not How a strange, good union, right? right? Yeah. Well, they all, you know, they, there was only a couple of really pure unions, and they were, like, in San Francisco. And so he got kicked out of the union, so he had to move on, and, and he was blacklisted, as people were in those days. Of course, we always hear about the Hollywood Ten, because, mm -hmm. you know, that's media and, that's, right, yeah. and so forth. And they also were very vocal and very articulate. There's some Dalton Trumbo writing that's just astounding. Right. You know, so they get a very high profile, high visibility. But the other unions also had a... Yeah, I mean, how about the other, you know, 70,000 people whose lives were ruined, some of them really ruined by this moron and his ilk. And, and it's the same people today that yeah. are doing this shit. So, so, so the upshot of it is yeah. he worked as a... Uh, a custom carpenter. Right. And where did we start with that? I don't even know how we got here. I was asking about how you got started as an artist. Because you, oh. you were like, I got out of school. And then you're talking oh, about yeah. rice. Yeah, so yeah, and he didn't have a job as an artist. Right. So I always think that there's a sort of carrying the torch. Right. Yeah, for him and, and my high school art teacher, Mr. Skasia. So when you got out of school, were you... When did you start selling things, and what were you selling when you started? See, and that's the other part, you know, coming from this sort of uh, working-class background, I wanted to be a potter. Right. Not a ceramist, not a whatever, you know, a potter, mm -hmm. you know, sandals and a Citroen 2CV. Okay. You know, that means get on living the dream, right? Yeah, that'd be, you know, be just it. You know, there's this crazy gal, Flavin Highland. Mm -hmm. She was over on... Uh, Lucille and Melrose Avenue. Like there's a that coffee house that's got a Spanish name. Uh, you know which one it is with the lighthouse on top. She's right she's right there. She's still there. Bellevue and, and uh, yeah, you know which one it is. They got a skeleton and it's a Spanish name. The upshot of it is we go over there when we were in high school and Flavin was one of the people who'd been around with Volkus and she was part of that crowd. And she was nuts. She was gay. She was a beatnik, and she was a drummer, and she was a potter. And she had this old studio that was sort of like a planting shed. Mm. And we'd go in there, and she'd let us sit around, and, and I'd be sitting there, and she'd have wash tubs full of glaze, and she'd go, oh, I think this needs a little bit more of that. And she'd dip shit in there and <laughs> dip shit. But she'd dip her pots in this vats, and off they'd go. And this was just just heaven, right? Did and, you start working there? Oh, no, no. I just went in. And at one point, one of my friends who was a consummate bullshitter was, told me that she had made her toilet also. And I asked her. She said, no, no, you can go look. <laughs> and But she, the other thing that she was doing is she'd have an open house or a pottery sale, and she'd make little flyers for it, like potato prints. Remember potato prints? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah she'd make, and they were just wonderful, just really beautiful and that was really inspiring. So you were inspired by her. What did you do first? The first, the beginning. Well, there's a lot of beginnings. Okay. Right? You know, I, I read this interview with a guy, and he says, well, I was always an artist. I was always good at art. I was involved in art when I was five years old. I'm going, everybody's involved. You know, I'm going, whoa. Well, the big how question can I compete with that? The big question when is when everybody you stop, is. You know, like most people stop. You know, they don't yeah, Well, I think that when it really took up, I mean, I was always taking art classes. I was right, right. taking, I found old certificates from junior high. I was the foreman of my handicrafts class. 
We used to make those plastic Get ear a foreman. Shoes. Yeah, That's I was nice. the foreman, not the foreskin. And I made those plastic knobs. Like, you ever seen them for hot rods? We made them for all my friends' parents' cars. Plastic knobs for hot rods. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're really nice. You know, we used to laminate them up with colored glue. We, I, I did them. For the gear shifter or for the steering wheel? No, for the, well, not a Brody knob. They were gear shift and the radio and the heater and all of that. We just all the knobs. Yeah, yeah. We pull them all off and I'd put set screws in them. Yeah, I made them for my friends' parents' cars. I had a little business going. Uh, <laughs> that's a, a divergent. I could talk about that for a while. True, but at least we did get to you making something and then making money off of it. Oh yeah, I was, right. Oh, we used so, to do all. You know, we used to print. My friend and I had a printing press. His father had given him a press, a little three by five. Yeah. And I and he would sell business cards to the kids and mm-hmm. everybody. Oh yeah, we nice. were always very. You know, lunch money was us. All right. And, and then when I got into Chenard. Chenard, you know, was an art school, right? So they didn't have T-shirts or jackets or notebooks or book covers or anything. So I, I started printing decals. I knew how to silk screen, and I figured out how to. And I'd go out and I'd sell a couple at lunch, get fifty cents, and then go buy lunch. <laughs> then people would say, "What do I do with them?" You know, well, you put it on the back of your car. If you don't have a car, I'd tell them put it on your bathroom mirror. And it must have worked out, right? It worked out. So then did you start independently doing pottery and then selling the pottery? Or or did, were you working in a studio? How did that start? Uh, well, once I got out of school, yeah, I managed a few things when I was in school. And I got out of school and I, I didn't have anything. I was working in my bedroom and fucking around, making these very little pots for obvious reasons. And my friend uh, Adrian Sachs called said, you know, we've got an open spot. Come and, come and sublet some space from me. Right. Which was just like, oh, he said, come down for cocktails. I told my dad, I think they're going to, you know, suggest this. He says, yeah, go for it. Right. We had cocktails. And I, yeah, I was very giddy and uh, a very uh, euphoric moment. And so I had a studio for a year. And then Adrian and Connie got married. And actually, Connie was my angel. She really told Adrian to do it. They got married, so they, you know, wanted to have the space alone. And Adrian got me a job at a joint called Franciscan. Mm-hmm. You ever hear of it? I, Franciscan it a, pottery. Yeah, yeah, it was a huge pottery concern. <laughs> you know, we'll give the standard answer. The standard answer is I worked a year and two days, which was a year too long. Saved up money for my studio. I hustled everything. I put in 90-hour weeks a couple of times, and I had some money. You know, and I thought, well, I've got this much money. If I work another year, I'll have twice as much, and I can have twice as good a studio. And I thought, no, uh-uh. Get the hell out of here. Get going. Because, you know, whatever it was, I was 24 or something, 25, I don't know. You go, well, 24 turns to 25, 25 turns to 30. And then you're in the same spot, you know, then you start losing it. And I just said, you know, whatever it is, I found a spot right up the street. I looked all over. You know, this is, I, t- I tell youngsters this to, to fuck with them. I found stuff for five cents a foot. I thought that was a lot because Adrian had uh, three cents a foot. I didn't realize he had something that nobody else had. Got in there first. He, he definitely. I have five cents a foot all, oh, I mean, unbelievable. I, the coolest stuff. But it was just too far from my center, which is my home. I found a place up the street, $100. It was 600 square feet, whatever that spells out. And it had a, a little sliver of a backyard. Door opened right onto the sidewalk on Echo Park Avenue, right by the market. Mm. And I said, if I can't make $100 a month, I should give it up. Anyway, so... So what were you giving people? Uh, cups and bowls? Yeah, well, you know, I did the first sale. I, I, you know, I was trained as a potter, trained right. at Chenard, and we did a Christmas sale. That was part of a model, uh, you know, and a business model at that, if you will. I, I was in my studio. I got, October 2nd was when I took over my... I quit Interpace, October 2nd. So by Christmas... So September I had about a month and a half in my studio, maybe right. a month. 
And I'd gotten these old molds from a friend, the same friend I told you about. Anyway, I got these old molds and I was fucking around with cats. I had two glazes that were actually the same glaze. One was white, one had blue stain in it, so it was like blue. I had two glazes. I'd done a bunch of stuff. It was pretty motley. And I called my mom and I said, I, you know, it's pretty dog-eared. What, I don't know what I should do. And she says, just do it. You'll need the money. <laughs> <laughs> so I did it. You know, I made $320. So that's three months. Yeah, groceries. that's right. Three months and uh, a couple of soda pops. Yeah, so if you just add some zeros, it's the same story everybody else is doing right now. <laughs> yeah, well, that's sort of the metric is 320. Right. Just like you say, it's just zeros. So in the 80s, was that when you first started doing the big public projects? In 1990. Oh, really? No, no, ni- 1985, I did the first piece. So what was that? That was a main place in Santa Ana. It was a 33-foot sculpture in the patio of the of the shopping mall. So was it a an application? Or was it, it was inside a sculpture. Job? No, but I mean, how did you get... Oh, oh, how did the thing come down? Yeah. I'd worked on the Olympics, oh, okay. which might qualify as the first project in 1984, 83. Was 84. that an application or somebody you know somebody or, or it just kind of happened? In that came, I did a show, Deborah Sussman and Paul Prasia were lining their shit up, lining their ducks up, and they came into my show and said, we're going to be calling you. Months went by, yeah, you know, then they called. Then we all went for a meeting down on 8th Street, and they showed us their design program and mm-hmm. so forth, and they said, we're on, we're going to be calling you. And what did Then months do? went by, and they called. <laughs> And then we had to run. I did the two athletes' discos in uh, USC and UCLA. They're basically sort of like interiors, mm-hmm. you know. Did they look at your work and go, this guy could do interiors, or are you already doing something? No, they interiors? looked at my work and said, this guy's on the same page as us. He, I told Deborah when the way that it worked, and this is very funny, the LA Olympics was managed by Bechtel. Mm, you okay. know them? No, Bechtel, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. the world's biggest construction right. company yeah. that are totally right-wing weirdos. So they managed it like a hardball construction mm-hmm. management. There were 53 executives on, quote, on loan to the LAOOC. So we were jammed up to the last minute with our budgets, with our instructions. This is the first time that you were dealing with something on that scale? Oh, yeah, I'd never done a big interior I remember that 19 because I was here in 1984 yeah, as a child fantastic. I just remember the whole city had those colors you know it had those banners it was Deborah the, Deborah and Paul post and a woman named Deborah Valencia who was their lead post designer. art deco kind of take and it was it very much described Los Angeles Miami and LA both had that sort of like uh, sort of geometry and that kind of color and so I guess they just looked at your work and figured you know you, you could be on the team but I, I'm impressed that they had a vision that, that, that you could do bigger things right away. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, you know, I'd worked with my dad. I'd been around him and been around construction. And he uh, was a very capable draftsman and arguably could have been an architect, probably better than most. He was very funny. He, he could draw beautifully mm. and draw any time. And his favorite trick was to get a hold of the uh, decorators. There was one in particular... And the guy would be going, and we'll make it fabulous. And and the client would be saying, yeah, but I don't know what you're talking about. My dad would find an old piece of wood and draw it in three-point perspective, you know, just to fuck with him. He he was really tired of this guy. But he could do that. You know, the architects give plans. They aren't resolved. He could figure out how to make it all work, spiral staircases, whatever. So I'd seen it. You know, I'd seen scale and... And, you know, been on construction. And the other thing is, Things you don't question it, right? No, that's normal <laughs> you know, for you, right? Well, no, I mean, you go, again, going back to high school experience, I hung out with this guy, Reuben Boyd. Mm-hmm. Reuben was a character. I mean, Reuben was special. He looked like the checker demon. Okay, you know? from those old comics. Yeah, from S. Clay Wilson. And a okay. big, wide face. He was a Santa Clara Indian, and, and he was one of those people that, you didn't know how old he was. Right. Oh, he could go into bars, you name it. And we always had liquor. We didn't, you know. He, he lived with his mother. His father wasn't around. And he was very self-possessed. 
And he said, the first thing you do is you never tell someone you've never done it before. That makes sense. Yeah. Just figure it until you make it. Yeah. <laughs> and especially, you know, whatever I was, 30-ish, you know, or, or something, 33. You don't think about that. You just say, yeah, fuck all. Let's go. Yeah, I'll figure it out. Let's so you're kind of a tinkerer. I mean, what it oh, looks absolutely. like walking around the studio is you... I could be wrong. It looks like you have fragments of old projects that you kind of recombine or, or experiments. You're like, this shape can be on that shape. Or like, often there's a piece, two pieces that are completely different colors and you get the impression that maybe the beginning of this aesthetic was like, well, this is this and that's that. And you kind of stick them I together. Think it just looks like that. <laughs> no, it was never like that. <laughs> no, the things that are hanging around are things that I just plain couldn't finish. Yeah, the things are pretty intended. There's a very consistent aesthetic of like, you have these objects that are like, this is all one color, this is all another color, this is one pattern, this is another pattern, and then they're stuck next to each other oh, in yeah. a sort of Bauhaus or, or a I'm like Mondrian-ish kind of that aesthetic. Was that early on, or were you doing different things, or was it, that always kind of weird? You know, it really was came once I came into my own studio. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was always leaning towards it. I always wanted red, yellow, blue. Yeah. You know, which is the Bauhaus, right? right Straight right. up. Red, yellow, blue. Yeah. Black, white, red. And that's really what, it was obvious even in schools, a couple of my instructors would tease me about it. And it was virtually impossible in the ceramics. You know, mm -hmm. we were doing high fire. And that was a, a quest. So once I got here, you know, you start <coughs> expanding on the things you're doing. One right. thing leads to another, etc. And then you go, you know, it feels good. And then you go, what the, why does it feel good? What was I doing? You know, that's backtracking, you know. So is each thing sort of, you do one thing and then you do another one that's like that, but a little more elaborate? Do you build each one to the next one? Or do you ever just have like just big gaps where you're like, I'm done with that kind of thing. I'm doing a whole new thing today. More or less change mediums. Mm. Hey. So, okay, right now you got this drawing on the table, which is obviously, it doesn't look like a traditional model sheet for like something that someone would build, but... It's going to be built, right? Is the idea. <laughs> That's the beauty of drawings. No gravity. Right. Maybe gravitas. Gravitas, but gravitas. no gravity. Yeah. Right? Thank you. That's um, what you get. I just, I'm a terror in the studio. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing I don't work here. But seriously, uh, folks, one of my friends who was a six foot three inch ex showgirl from Texas. It was looking at a, we were standing there and someone asked about one of the models and said, is this a model for a bigger sculpture? And I started to say, well, really it's, because, you know, once you start expanding at the size, everything changes. Yeah. I started to try and explain that. And she says, pulls me aside quickly and says, oh, honey, just tell them they can have it any size they want. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was beautiful. My godfather does iron work. He does custom iron work. And he says this is what he does. When people ask for something, he gives them the drawing or he gives them a model. And he always puts in one thing that he knows that they won't like that's very easy to get rid of. That's what you do when you're shopping for your wife. You hand it over. And then they go, oh, you got to, can you get rid of this? And then they, and he goes, and he goes, oh, yeah. And then they feel like they own it. And that they're more invested. There's all kinds of stuff like that, yeah. Give us blue some duck. tips. Blue duck. They call that the blue duck. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Sure, you put a, yeah, the blue duck. And then they go, can you hear that? And they're like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. They do that in screenwriting, too. <laughs> Another aspect of that is if they, if we're doing a group of something and they say, well, we'd like 10 pieces, do 20, so you'll get 10. Right. right. Mine is probably the purple duck. Most people freak out at purple. I'll put purple in there. There's all kinds of stuff like that. I look for people to participate when it comes to a commission. One year we were doing work for a decorator. We were doing lamp bases. Yeah. They basically were cubes with a hole top and bottom and a, a string the lamp and sure. paint thrown at them, you know, spattered paint. She says, you know, oh, that, you know, can't you do this or that? And so I said, I'll tell you what. You come on over when we're doing it. And so we set them all up, did our stuff. And then she, I said, what do you think? And she says, well, it needs a little pink. So I gave her the jar of pink <laughs> and she kind of threw a little bit. And then she was happy as a bug. 
you know, people like what they cook. Would you photograph that piece and be like, this is a good piece? Or are you like, okay, that one's kind of messed up because it's pink. It happens both ways. What is there a commission that you did a public piece where it was smooth and in the end, what's a best example of something that you like? This is a really interesting question because the way that I boil it out is when you look at these kind of situations, don't judge the artist, judge the client. Because I, you know, I've worked with all kinds of people. Some people are, you know, just are real jerks, and it shows in the work. They're micromanagers. They just have to. Some uh, know how to let go, and some really know how to direct. And, cool. and one of the amazing experiences was doing some work for Gordon Davidson, mm-hmm. who who was basically the director of the music center and the uh, Amundsen and the taper. And then we're about, we're going into it and we're kind of, you know, about halfway through. And I looked up and I thought, this guy is telling me exactly what to do within my capabilities in a way that I'm really liking it. It was a revelation. So he was like the film director and you were... Well, he was a theater director. Right, but I mean, mean, so he's used to thinking of people... As talented and creative, but given a specific task. And also directed to exceed themselves. Taper Auditorium? Taper Theater. Because that guy's name is all over LA. Oh, no, Mark Taper? It's like everywhere. Yeah, I think he was a savings and loan guy or something. I thought he invented tape. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, no wonder. You know? <laughs> no, he was a graffiti artist, only he used tape. He put taper all over everything. How do you feel about graffiti on your public work? I want to kill him. Is it because they did it wrong or because they did it at all? You know, I've had to cope with this. Sure. No doubt. And one of the things that I've come away with is that this is the product of a society with excess. If people were worrying about eating, they would not be worried about writing their name on shit and defacing it. You know, and it is an act of vandalism, and that's the attraction. And it also is a need to be recognized. I've heard of these young guys that ride on freight trains and then they've got a whole group of people that that are in on it and they'll watch the freight yards and go, oh, there's so-and-so's tag. Definitely true. Yeah. yeah, so that's the best you can do. Well. You know, that's the best you can do is ride on a freight train. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know? What is the weirdest commission you've ever gotten? Like most outside of what you would expect that you would be asked to do unusual. No, it was the weirdest commission. The thing that came to mind initially mm-hmm. was a, a commission that I did for an advertising guy when I was working at Franciscan. I was in the tile design department. I was a gopher. So they called me in and there was this man's name was Harry Pack and he said, you know, our illustrator drew this candle holder for the cover and it was for some terrible catalog. I don't even know what it was. And it was, uh, you know, like the wee willy winky sort of candle holder. Yeah. Only okay. he had drawn it for a one of those giant, like, four-inch diameter candles. Okay. And no such thing existed. So I had to make it out of clay and put china paint, you know, put gold paint on it. That was pretty disgusting. <laughs> and it was great. You know, I, I didn't know what to charge. And they said, is $35 okay? And I thought that's more than I would have asked. That's great. So, so it's a really my fat watches. candle holder. Yeah, yeah, I was like really fat. Probably, I think I have a picture of it somewhere. <laughs> go in my catalog resume. Who are some artists that you uh, were looking at when you were starting out? I mean, were you into like... Well, you really Jean do this good. And stuff? You, you, you ask all those questions, you don't even have notes. Well, I mean, you know, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. You know? I've done okay. it about 50 times at this point. All right, okay. I'm glad to know. Not I'm, I'm glad to know I'm one of many. Yeah, I mean, okay. I want you to feel like you're not very special is yeah. the important thing. I mean, yeah. I know you feel like, oh, I'm the king and I have all this great art and I'm surrounded by this delightful studio. But I really want you to feel like you're a cog, in the, you know, in the art wheel. that's the important thing. But I do actually, I'm interested because your stuff feels like it is not connected and it is connected to say Jean Tingelet or Mark de Suvero in interesting ways. Like yeah. there's interesting differences and interesting similarities you know, to me. You know, when, so. we, when we get the in there, is there someone in that for Yeah, it's uh, the little guy in there. Yeah. Um, when we talk about those kind of things, yeah. where does it start and stop, right? 
you know, like you say, the recognized artists that we're clearly looking at. And sometimes we even see afterwards or don't realize that we've seen and go, wow, I was trying to do red, yellow, blue. I was deep in red, yellow, blue in school. Right. And I went in and they had a catalog for Sam Francis. And I thought, holy cow, you know, this is what I want to do, only he's doing it. Well, Sam Francis was fun. He had the most fun with that way of making things. Yeah. Like there was abstract expressionism that felt like there was something really structural about it. Like we're going to go into painting, we're going to rip it apart and we're going to, and he did all the things, but then he was like, but you could do it with aqua. You know, he had a special paint. Oh yeah? Yeah. He had his paint mixed uh, mostly by Nova color and he had a special paint. Yeah. The pigment was so loaded. Yeah that when he put the water on it, it changed colors. You know, I mean, it didn't turn from red to blue. Right, yeah. It it turned from sort of a almost black to a a vibrant blue. He'd run a big wash on the wash and dump it in one end so it would bleed out. Do you think, you know, L.A. is for fun artists? Absolutely. Because I feel like whenever I go to New York and come back, we have yellow here, and they don't have yellow there at all. New York, they don't believe in yellow. I'm going to keep my eye out for that. They don't do it. They just, they're like, that's yellow is too fun. It's like sunshine and like you're happy and you're eating eggs. It's bright. Yeah, yellow. Fried food, you know. Yeah, yellow definitely is positive. They don't do that there. New York doesn't want to say anything to that. You guys do like some construction-y <laughs> manila, you know, like big, heavy industrial machinery kind of. <laughs> yeah, right. Caterpillars are yellow. Like file folder. But that's yellow. a dark yellow. Yeah. Actually, I, I don't really have the sense for it. Yeah, the art hasn't been that fun lately. Yeah, you oh. should move. No, don't move. There's too many of you fuckers here already. Uh, so when did there start to be too many young artists and you wanted them just to leave? Young artists? Like what year were you like, there's too many artists moving to L.A., leave? Artists I'll take. It's the rest. It's, uh, you know, no, I mean, it sounds hard, but it's, we're definitely radically impacted here and it's going to get worse. So, yeah, well, actors make great waiters. We, you know, that, that you need that. Artists, shitty waiters. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I was never good in. Most artists don't have good social skills, so they wouldn't make good waiters. Well, artists have good social skills, and they can do all kinds of things. What are artists good at besides art? Carpentry. Carpentry. Yeah, that's a classic. And that's the other thing about working at Franciscan. Yeah. It was so horrible. There was an extreme situation with mm-hmm. a couple of the employees. My idea, and when you asked me how many employees yeah. I have, is that every seven employees, there has to be one radical asshole. And they may not even be an asshole outside of the job, but it's just at that point, with that metric, somebody has to do it. What if you do it serially, like one, and then they're done, and then one, we no, go the seventh one be fine? No, or is that, it has to be at once. It's just how many people are on the set. At the same time. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that, that's a solid management idea. Like mariachi bands have seven guys, right? They vary. You're into jazz. Sometimes jazz has seven guys up there, right? Sometimes it has 25 Right, guys. but then they're always rotating people. Right, so yeah, but, I, but that's probably why. But one of the questions would be, and this is, you know, we're veering off, and that is the difference between music, musicians and artists. Yeah, where let's, art, let's go there. Art is essentially, you're in your studio, it's you. Right. You're the star, mm-hmm. and it's the deal. Yeah. And musicians, there may be a leader, etc., but it's all about a cooperative effort where everybody's coming in and meshing with each other and expanding. And that's the euphoria that musicians seek. Well, when you were talking about working on the Taper Center, what I thought of is... You mean with with Gordon? Yeah. Yeah, but that was just he and I. True, but the best musical collaborations are where each different musician is given a task that they are completely free within that room that's very well described for them. Like you do this and then they are free within that. And the way you were describing it was the way that I've heard a good musical collaboration design where it was like, 
it wasn't you two were creating all over each other. It was like you were given a very specific place to create, and then you were very happy in that box because you were given a. But well, we're a really good going. We're, this is good. This is one of the big questions, especially in art. What is collaboration? I mean, I feel you know, like you're, get, you're often collaborating, you know, because of the nature of your kind of and I've been in, I've been in a couple of situations that were called for collaboration, you know, teams, artist teams, that kind of stuff. It's always been different. One of them I remember because I was trying to work something where we sort of all worked on the same areas and added in. Mm-hmm. And we did a whole group of drawings where we all worked on the same drawing which was a very interesting experience. But then in the end, the two partners said, well, I'll take this area, you take that area, and he'll take the other area. Yeah, what happened in this particular case is they didn't have the experience to deal with the overall space, so they gave that over to me, and I redesigned the overview, the shapes and the connecting tissue, the connecting shapes which was just fine for me. I love so that, that stuff. Worked. And I'll take so that was on. your... Yeah, but it was very individual pieces within that. It was very funny. Uh, I'll take the work. I was right. looking at, we've been looking at all my old slides, trying to get a little database going. I look at something, I go, wow, look at that. And I go, I did that for free. Oh yeah, and look at that. I did that for free. But, you know, get it done. Are you a problem solver? I mean, is that your way that you come to a piece in the beginning? Sometimes, yeah, if it needs it. Is that exciting to you? It has to be this big, it has to have at least this many colors. It can't be made of anything but this material. Go. Are those limitations, to start with, like those interesting to you? You know what Mark said? I know a lot of things he Mark said, but which one are we talking about today? I'll tell you mine, you tell me yours. Okay. Uh, freedom is the recognition of necessity. I love that. Fair yeah, enough, all right. Yeah. You know, I think one of the great shows that came off was a surfboard show mm-hmm. for Heal the Bay. Yeah. Everybody was given a surfboard. Yeah. So you went into this final exhibit and everybody had had to solve the problem off the same information. And that really showed what <coughs> people do, showed how they approach a problem. It was really an interesting show and really a fabulous show. Do you ever make things from zero? And you're inventing the format. Is that a common way, or you usually set up a few? Well, at this hurdles? point, I don't think that would be possible. You know, Lenny Bruce said, "I speak English naturally. I'm fucked." You know, I mean, I'm going to go out, and what am I going to grab? If, even if I grab clay, you know, or, um, I have too much history in myself. You know, when you're, you know about the young artists. A lot of them are very intrigued with clay. And they want to approach it without knowledge. Right. Whereas in my era, and in probably in this era very often, people say you can't do it if you don't know the ground rules. Right. Then you break them. You got to know the rules to break them. And so with that in mind, I was very good. I was a very good uh, ceramist by the time I got into art school. And we were looking at Volkus and Mason. I mean, you and, seem like you're like Ken Price, you know, turning things into a sculptural medium. As a craft person, you're very comfortable. As a business person, you sound like you were very comfortable. And as like an artist, ang- you're very as a business person, I'm very anxious, but I do what I have to. But it seems like all those things were there from the beginning. I mean, a lot of people start out as a craftsperson. Hey, my family were merchants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my dad was a, a general contractor. Right. And so they were behind you. Well, then they, <laughs> they were grateful that I wasn't a total wreck, let's face it. Well, I mean, I think a lot and of people interpret making my, pottery as being a total wreck. Like, I think my, a lot of parents would be been like, all you're doing is making pots for $300 a month. You know, yeah. like, but they didn't. They were like, all right, this is, this is working. Positive activity was recognized. Absolutely. All right. So it worked out. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, and, and that's something. I mean, you know, I... I've survived. Hey, we're going to talk about the furniture design. What do you want to know about the furniture, John? I want to know how that evolved and uh, what's more important, interesting or being comfortable. Interesting. Are we, we're not sitting in uh, no, Peter sitting, Shire you're chairs. you're sitting in Jao Ponte and I'm sitting in uh, Don Chadwick. Okay, those chairs, the Eames chairs, were yeah. in my parents' house. You know, the typical whatever model. They but are. that one's one of yours, yeah? Yeah, we modified it. You know, we, they all fell apart. 
Yours. That, but no, Eames, Eames, oh, Eames. The little rubber bumpers on the back mm. always come unglued. But with furniture, I was very interested in furniture, and I'd made furniture with my father all through my life, and I'd made furniture for people that needed it, you know, when I was saving up my money for a studio. And I made furniture when I got right out of school because we had a saw and some things like that. My take on it was it was too expensive and too involved and too hard to keep to experiment and to do in my condition. And so I went and really veered back to the clay. Easy to prototype, easy to make experiments, easy to dispose of if it didn't work out. Right. The interest was there. I uh, had gone to Italy and seen all the young guys that I was involved with, and even guys that I met, you know, everybody had a little piece of furniture that was kind of wacky and fantastic, Mm. you know, be in the hall or in the corner, and it was just charming and fantastic, and... uh, What's the right word? It was exhilarating. Do you go around it. Do you go around the city thinking, oh, maybe I should make one of those? Do you like see ordinary objects and go like, maybe we should do I one see of those? weird houses and I think I could make that into a chair, you know? So you're kind of making the, the architecture into a... Yeah, well, yeah, moves, you know, yeah. moments within these things. Mm. Things especially that offend me. So you're offended by the house and you're like, I'll make it into a chair. Yeah, or yeah, an industrial processes. Huh? Talk to us about that. That's interesting. Which, yeah. It offends you, and so you want to... Yeah, Because your work seems very positive and, and That's and why. This is my world. It starts at the door. So you're making a better version. Yeah. I make, like, well, if we do it right, this is how you do it. To begin with. Yeah. yeah. It's more owning it and taking it. It is a bit of doing it right, but it's also um, sort of carnivorous or something i mean you have this bright green gate on the front of right. your thing and i imagine that's on purpose and then do you think like the the shopping that's along the street has to sort of match your gate and i'm wondering if your public works you ever see something that you've made that you've made in la and then you see the the houses around it the aesthetic around it has to adapt to your public work like do you ever feel like that's part of your effect on the environment I wish. <laughs> I mean, because I, <laughs> I mean, you know, let's let's face it. You know, there's no accounting for taste. But I there's, do feel uh, like all kinds of sayings like that. You know who did that? Who? Doug Doug Tompkins. Okay. Yeah, he started a spree, and he right. went out sure. and he paid everyone within a three block radius to paint their houses the color that he liked. Nice. How could they refuse refuse a, a free paint job? Right. Yeah. The other one is uh, Dee Meniel. Uh-huh. Yeah, she had had everybody, you know, paid everybody paint jobs. So that's the dream. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I honestly do feel like I, it had an effect on the way Los Angeles looked. Because like, the first time I lived here, I was, was 1984-ish. I was eight years old. You know, I look at your work and I'm like, oh yeah, this is like LA. Is like there's a, this sort of fun aesthetic of there and these certain geometries, you know, that, that are well, fun. You have to remember that L.A. is a fantasy. It's a fantasy place. We've imported water. It shouldn't be here. It's a fantasy. Right. You know, you could cite the movies, and maybe we will, but basically the fantasies and mythologies are based on things that are sort of over a horizon that are imagined that you can't quite see. They're platonic. I'm I'm not sure which one of Plato's ideals you'd base that on. I mean, I would say like you use geometry. It's it's like a, th- a thing that's informing. Oh yeah, but it, that's that's moving. Like, I'm it's talking about a... something else. Okay. And I'm talking about how, for instance, palm trees are L.A. Right. Yeah. Well, there aren't that many palm trees here. Developers planted rows of them in certain neighborhoods to basically promote the fantasy. Right. L.A. as a garden spot is a fantasy Mm -hmm. but those things are ubiquitous in people's minds even though they aren't ubiquitous within this city Mm -hmm. so high-end modifiers you know you know powerful objects that become emblematic iconic are what we're dealing with and when you think of art deco well there isn't that much art deco but it typifies the 30s right it's the deal Etc. Etc. So when we say that what I do in L.A., what you're reacting to, has yeah. become a iconic part of L.A. 
and represents our vision, our fantasy. Yeah. I mean, but it's Thank also, God, it's a difference. Now I got to monetize it. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Is that kind of, to me. Well, yeah, I mean, also, I mean, like, I go out. When you do I, that, you think yeah, but like, look, that's look. the difference between this city and that city. Most two of two cities are similar, oh, but then yeah, there are the parts about, that stick think, out as different. When I think about DC, oh, God. I think about little tree-lined streets, and I look in the windows, and the walls are hunter green and maroon. Yeah. With white trim, you know. I hated it. I lived. That's where I came from. But you, you know, that's like you're saying that. Yeah. You know, the light, the air, the quality, the some, the ability to go out in shorts. Right. Most of the year, if not all. And the acceptance of that is Los Angeles. Yeah, Los Angeles definitely. And uh, we'll see how with the influx of East Coast people that say, well, it isn't New York. You know, you go, yeah, <laughs> why'd you come here, buddy? You know, oh, I got it. You know, they say uh, you always hurt the one you love. <laughs> You've been great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Peter Shire's latest work at the Catalina Island Museum. There will be an exhibition of three outdoor sculptures. He also has a show at Harper's Gallery in New York late this spring. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon set up. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can. And you will be one of our supporters at patreon.com backslash weed art. All one word. Weed art is produced by Papel and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. We have to figure out a way to end the show in like an elegant manner. Thank you. <laughs>